human ignorance is a big part of the whole the whole way it functions you know is is we're not really supposed to be aware of certain things because then that just gets in the way of how they function like we're not supposed to be aware that we're just uh, let's let's say that it can be proven that there's no free will well does that mean we should go around acting as if we don't have free will or should we go ahead and behave as we always have which is to assume that that we're making decisions so doesn't really make any difference uh, in reality, you know, because in reality, you're going to do what you're going to do, right? Well, some of that same kind of spiritualistic thinking has, is really what underlies our inability. I call that spiritualistic thinking, I know. But that kind of evolutionary irrationality, I guess you could say, this stuff that we do because it's essential to our survival, but that doesn't mean it's rational, and yet we believe it. Potentially, we could be fooled by that. Fooled by that, I mean that we're trying to look at this objectively. We either can't become objective on certain issues because they're too intrinsic to what we are, to what we believe we are. Water is just something that's part of what we are, and it's been heavily involved in our spiritualistic evolution, in the evolution of our ability to believe. Let's put it that way. So kind of think of that, that humans have the ability to believe things. Now, notice I didn't say that was a negative thing. It's not a negative thing in terms of evolution, in terms of survival. The ability to believe is very important because uh, got to keep in mind, our minds are, you know, they're basically software. And we have to have good working order in our software, right? And, and that means and it means a number of things. But one of the things it means is that sometimes you simplify things and you, and these simplifications, although they're under the best of intentions, you know, in terms of how they actually function, get in the way when we try to be objective about reality so that we can make decisions in a scientific sense. And that's what happens with water. That's what happens with anything to do with life, biology. The same thing that happens with biology, it happens with water, but it's, it's, just, it's, it's more abstract, I guess you could say. With water, there's some actually, especially as it applies to weather, there's some actually really points, you know, things that are believed and things that are no, that are known, and you can match up these points, or or you can attempt to, let's say, match up these points. And when you do this, and you, and you do it from an objective manner, you realize the points don't match quite that much, <laughs> and they don't, they don't. Our bias is very real, and it doesn't exist on only one level. In some respects, our bias is due to the fact that we're a life form. And in another respect, our bias is due to the fact that we're a mammal, let's say. And another one might be due to the fact that we um, only see light. Other, you know, you can go, just go one category to the next. Evolution doesn't make us aware of these limitations, though. What will eventually prove to be the most important contribution I've made to science will be the realization that H2O is a solvent of its own polarity. Now, let me clarify that. First of all, it's not completely explicit. For example, an H2O molecule does not completely dissolve the polarity of its adjacent H2O molecule. They don't dissolve on a one-to-one -one basis.
Each one can make up to four hydrogen bonds, one each with up to four of its neighbors. Now, when we say that phrase, when we say H2O is a solvent of its own polarity, what we really mean is that making hydrogen bonds with itself, which it does naturally and comprehensively, each one of those bonds, and there can be up to four, again, with each of one each with four of their neighbors, will literally dissolve, make it disappear. That being the polar force associated with their ability to produce a polar force, their literal polarity. Some of that is dissolved. Some of that polarity is literally dissolved. A more specific and explicit way to describe that is that H2O is a solvent of 25% of each of up to four of its neighbors that it generally has at ambient temperature. Now, this puts our understanding of H2O, just that phrase that I just stated, changes everything, changes everything, because it, it basically tells us that the reason H2O molecules, which are very close to each other in the liquid phase, are so loose with each other, no viscosity, you know, that's one of the amazing things about H2O, is it just completely, completely fluid. And it kind of shows us the, the problem is that it's somewhat mental on the part of humans. We call this a polar molecule, and yet its most basic observation, low viscosity, there's, there's just no way you could look at liquid water, see how easy it flows, and think that there's much of anything going on in there electromagnetically. And sure enough, if you were to look, you would find out that, yeah, that's exactly the truth too. There's really very little electromagnetic exchange. There is some bumping going on, especially in flowing water. And so there's a lot of kinetic energy in there, but there's really not much of, in fact, there's an, uh, an absence of the kind of charges we expect from molecules that have something polar about them. In other words, by recognizing that, yes, H2O is a polar molecule, but in the liquid phase, it turns itself off. We now understand why a polar molecule can have such low viscosity. And so the point I'm trying to make here, though, is a little bit deeper than that is that no one ever looked at it that way before. The notion that H2O had such low viscosity never seemed like a problem to anyone because because apparently it was such a blatant disconnect with what we actually experienced. The notion that it's polar, it's like we just lost our mind a little bit. We turned our minds off. We just accepted it, even though it was plainly nonsensical. It's plainly obvious that in liquid water, there's very little electromagnetic activity going on between them because it flows so easily. Now, of course, we could then look at ice, and we could also look at the very high boiling temperature of H2O, and we could say, wait a minute, how did something get this hard in terms of ice, and why does something take so much energy in terms of its boiling point, you know, relative? How can that happen without this having polar properties? And so that makes sense too. In other words, you have a molecule that for some reason has no polarity under certain conditions, specifically in calm liquid water, and that has high polarity in other situational factors, 
this gives us, for water, the proper starting point. Because the proper starting point for water is to realize that it is a polar molecule individually, but that collectively H2O is the solvent of its own polarity. Polarity plays a role, but as a variable, and literally because it's a variable. What I mean is that some of these behaviors only happen because that variability is there to have an elastic effect with terms of its relationship with energy. Now we have a mathematical way to describe that elasticity. H2O molecules are 25% solvents of each other's polarity, and they can each make up to four bonds with up to four of their neighbors. That means it can potentially get all the way down to zero, which is essentially what's happening in liquid water. Liquid water has no polarity. They are so connected to each other that there's literally no remaining polarity whatsoever. And that gets all confused by the fact that then they take you to uh, chemistry and they tell you, oh, this is a polar molecule. Let us show you all the ways it's polar. And they show you all these ways. And you go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, it's a polar molecule. That recognition that it's a polar molecule directly contradicts something that you've observed all your life. And that's the mistake. That's the flaw. That's the human flaw. Just the notion that H2O is a polar molecule and that it's that simple is immediately delusional. If we don't see that, we become part of that delusion. And that's kind of what's happened. The delusion has just been mixed into the academic um, sciences. And again, and the only way to get around it is to just be aware of the fact that each H2O molecule is a solvent of 25% of its, of its neighbor's polarity, and they are of its. So, um, you know, or you can just simplify it and say that H2O is the solvent of its own polarity. Beyond that, once you have that kind of like as a principle, it helps you realize the degree to which your own confusion, central confusion that we all have on this particular issue, that being the fact that we've all looked at water as being this amazingly fluid substance, then we're told it's polar, and that immediately makes us confused. Most of us don't cover from that in our whole lives. And that's what's really the main problem. Almost everyone is slightly confused by that twist in logic. Because it's the arrangement that's causing an electrical gradient, and that electrical gradient is what is pushing the electrons off-center. So note the difference in wording. When I describe it, I'm referring to electrical gradients, and I'm talking about electrons being pushed off-center from their nuclei by these electrical gradients. And I'm noting that in H2O, those electrical gradients exist because of the arrangement of the atoms. But for me, it's an electrical gradient that's, that's pushing those atoms off-center. So if something opposes those, what's going to happen? Well, if something opposes an electrical gradient, it's as if there's no electrical gradient. It turns it off. It provides electromagnetic balance so that the nuclei, I mean, the, the electron continues circling around the nuclei in a relatively circular pattern. So, each time an H2O molecule makes a bond with up to four of its neighbors, 25% of its electromagnetic gradients, one quarter of it, is turned off. Why is it turned off? Well, because it's directly opposed. So, the polarity is literally adjusted downward. 
And since that can happen at 25% per bond with up to four, it can potentially be adjusted downward all the way to where it's so low that even the slightest amount of movement between H2O molecules will cause them to somewhat break apart again, activating the polarity a little bit, as long as they can continue to maintain that tetrahedral arrangement that allows them to fully neutralize each other's polarity. This different understanding, H2O being the mechanism of its own polarity, turning off and by way of breaking of hydrogen bonds, turning on, activating polarity, that mechanism is what gives H2O its personality, is what gives it the capabilities that don't seem obvious. Amongst them, of course, since I'm doing this for tornadoes and stuff, is the ability of H2O molecules to form into polymers, and the polymers have the ability to conserve energy and spin up on wind shear boundaries and create this form of H2O that is the structural basis of the atmospheric plumbing, which, by the way, depends greatly on its ability and the ability of, of this form of H2O to aggressively maintain a seal. You got to understand that H2O can aggressively. So this form of H2O, what I call surface tension on steroids, that can only happen because of the very unique situational factors where you have micro droplets that can spin very rapidly on wind shear boundaries and produce this kind of a, a plasma. But once this stuff gets going, it will continue to continue its own existence by way of the fact that a big part of its existence depends on flow. And what it does is focus that. Structural properties isolate the contents therein from friction. Any difference in pressure on one end of the tube to the other will allow air accelerating up it. And that's when it starts to kind of take on a life of its own. You're literally bleeding off the energy from the high pressure and at one of the same time, shooting it directly into the flow of the jet stream. And it's kind of these two processes, by the way, that really, really do describe our weather. And that is that vortex growth jet stream maintains the velocity that's necessary to create the wind shear and to effectuate the growth of these vortices because of the structural capabilities they gain as a result of the flow on wind shear boundaries. And it's because of this aggressive tendency that the whole thing is able to achieve some amazingly dramatic capabilities over hundreds of miles with respect to hydraulic principles. These are tubes and they stretch from tens to hundreds of miles, but ultimately they're just spinning water. So something to think about, there's these tubes up that are very vulnerable and that if we could control them, if we could, what if they are like a, a bubble, we could pop the bubble and in so doing, stop the delivery of the low pressure energy at a point in time when that would be destructive, you know, in some kind of a severe weather situation. The most important concept that differentiates my scenario is the fact that in my scenario, the energy of storms comes from a high, it comes from the jet stream. And the means by which that low pressure energy is delivered to the location of a storm is through vortices. So you put those two aspects of my scenario together and it kind of points directly to the possibility that if the low pressure energy of the storm is delivered from a place that's far away from where the storm is, 
then the entity that's doing this delivery must be stretched over that distance. And if that is the case, it may be very vulnerable. It may not be very powerful. It may be very weak, something that could actually be altered. Then that means we could alter or inhibit the delivery of the low pressure energy to a storm. And that is the characteristic of the prevailing theory right now that it is so vague and so completely based on tricks of belief and not methods of science that there's no way that any common person is going to be able to get a grasp on it. They're going to be continually confused. And that's what does happen. That's what is the case. Most people who encounter meteorology's current storm theory loses interest very quickly. You never find anybody discussing it. First of all, there's so little to discuss. And the explanations are so vague that it ultimately comes down to you either believe it or you don't. There's no room for doubt because there's no room for any discussion at all. So as you can imagine, this delineates political realities along the lines that they're just going to play dumb, do like everyone does and pretend they understand it and avoid actually addressing the fact that they don't really even begin to understand it because there's nothing there. It's vague nonsense. You want to believe water can defy its own boiling point? You know, there's no evidence of it, but you want to believe it? Well, you can, because lots of other people do too. And that's the reality of what's going on in this part of science. It's not science. It's a political movement, kind of a little bit of a cult based on beliefs and has at its heart avoiding any real science. I mean that. The heart of its intent is to avoid anything that will reveal the fact that it's just vague nonsense. That's ultimately what the whole paradigm is about. And that's why you will not find anybody who will debate it with you. What it is is this whole field is so ensconced in superstition that it's a complete intellectual dead zone. And that's just the reality of what's going on in the field of meteorology. It is not anything remotely like the physical sciences or let's say chemistry or biology or medicine. It is completely a cult and the cult has its intellectual origins in the complete failure of physics and chemistry to comprehend hydrogen bonding of H2O. If you want to understand how the atmosphere actually functions, you do have to understand water first. And that's something that is going to be a sticking point for a lot of people. I had to realize that our understanding of water had major flaws for me to even consider what I was considering. And those doubts were anchored in my study of hydrogen bonding of water. Now that confusion on water may be intrinsic to being human and maybe something that we can't ever get beyond. I don't know. It's kind of like flat earth thing in a sense, except in this case, the flat earthers are the people who believe in the current paradigm. There's an aspect to it where they just can't think. H2O throws a monkey wrench into the gears and that monkey wrench is playing a big role and causing a lot of the confusion that continues to make the subject almost impossible for most people, almost impossible. So you wonder, well, how is it that I figured all this stuff out? Well, I just did. I allowed myself to ask the questions that other people won't allow themselves to ask. And I worked through all the confusion to eventually figure out what's going on with the H2O molecule electromechanically. This 
cold, gusty air is being delivered. And that's the important concept to get. And that's the huge difference between my understanding and the understanding of the current paradigm, is that my understanding, the thing that makes a storm a storm has to be delivered on the scene. And we know where it comes from too. It comes from the jet stream. And we know how it gets there too. It comes through vortices. When uh, dealing with meteorologists, you have to hold their feet to the fire with respect to acknowledging that their model has no empirical support because it isn't really based on empiricism, it's based on observation. And the problem with that is, is to human mind. So a lot of them say that they believe convection and buoyancy. Um, zero of them will discuss it in detail and discuss some of the shortcomings with, you know, one of the biggest one being uh, the fact that the boiling point of H2O is much higher than their uh, model has assumed. And thus, um, they're assuming that when moist air is invisible, that therefore it's gaseous, which is just really not true. Just simply not true um, based on simple physical principles, you know, understanding what the boiling point of a substance is, you know. It's simple math there. Now, there's all this confusion, though, that's created by the fact that moist air is often invisible and that the vapor or the liquid water droplets that are suspended, and that's what a vapor is, by the way. This is evaporate. This is vapor. It's not gas um, in our atmosphere anyways. So, and the whole paradigm is completely confused on that issue alone. So right there, you have this central confusion, completely nonsense, you know, belief. We go this way, all, all 100 billion of us, or however many are, and Jim, again, you can go the other way. Uh, and none of us have any obligation to explain. When it comes to actually understanding the physics of storms, uh, meteorology lost the path a long, long time ago. They went from basically religion you know, God throwing thunderbolts, then vague notions based on ocean charts from um, people sailing around the world a couple hundred years ago. And then from there, they developed a verbiage, and the verbiage kind of created its own scenario. And that's really all it is. It being the convection model of storm theory. So keep in mind that we're talking about a model or a, a, uh, a variation, a causal model of the phenomenon that we all witness, what we call a storm. And of course, we're assuming there's gotta be some common elements involved. And that's why we're, you know, that's why we're pursuing this. That's why we're looking into this. That's why we're, we're getting to the truth on this. We're asking questions. And your paradigm can't ask questions. Now, you can't challenge the only explanation that everyone believes. It's useless. So what they end up doing then is they just stop doing science because it's kind of like unnecessary. And not only that, it will complicate the purity of the message with respect to the greater group delusion that they understand, you know, that they have this deep understanding of storms, even though they have what someday will be recognized by everybody to be little more than kindergarten storytelling. I mean, that's literally all it is. 
that uses words that us humans tend to be attracted to. And so, you know, there's all these layers on top of simple physics. So it's a perfect opportunity to get something completely wrong. Yes, folks, that's what meteorology is. It's a perfect opportunity, one that has historical um, momentum to it, to completely misunderstand uh, what's happening in storms. It actually even goes deeper because until you understand water, you can't, there's just no way. And with my model, you have an opportunity to describe what's really happening in the atmosphere because you now have a better understanding of the actual plumbing that's doing the work. It is the plumbing of the atmosphere that's doing the work that to us shows up as a storm. What's really happening here is we have a better understanding of how structure can appear in the atmosphere. That's the big takeaway. And it would involve the dynamics associated with the fact that when you do have structure, you are able to achieve a flow, especially when, when the structure is um, one in which the flow itself is part of what maintains the structure, which is what exactly happens with, within the vortices, which are, vortices are the structural component of weather. They are the structure. They are like the, the branches of the tree. You're just part of a larger group delusion, just a belief system, that's all.